It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to a special Latitude Festival edition of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, Culture Editor of the NS. We hosted three events at Latitude this year and we're going to give you some edited highlights now. On the Thursday, we had the NS contributing writer and Guardian columnist Owen Jones, author of Chavs and the Establishment. He was joined by the award-winning journalist Suzanne Moore and the Labour councillor Georgia Gould, author of Wasted, How Misunderstanding Young Britain Threatens Our Future. They discussed austerity, inequality, aspiration, and the future of the left, and of course, Jeremy Corbyn, with the NS web editor, Caroline Crampton. There was, I don't know if you guys remember, there was an election quite recently in which the left did not fare well. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the title of this event is The Politics of Hope. Is there any cause for hope? Suzanne, you look like you want to say something. Of course, there's always a cause for hope. It's a pretty depressing time right now for lots of people, but I think that you can't be politically involved and not have hope. Hope, You know, if you're in politics or if you're interested in politics, yeah, it's because you want things to change and you think they will. They just aren't changing fast enough or in the way that we anticipated. Mm. Uh, What do we mean by hope? I mean, for me... What we're always told is injustice is a bit like the weather, that you it's all right at the moment, it might rain this weekend. Though. But if you complain about it raining, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way the world is. And injustice and the problems we face are often construed as such. And all of the hope means is that injustice and problems are transient and temporary and can be overcome with enough determination, uh, enough commitment and enough resources. And that's the history of this country, you know. All the way through our history, we have defeats, and all the struggles that we face, whether it be for the welfare state, whether it be for women's rights, whether it be against homophobia, uh, all of these have faced defeats, defeats, and defeats. But in the end, those people were vindicated. And yeah, we'll talk maybe about Labour's defeats and why that happened. I don't think that's any vindication whatsoever for what the Conservatives are trying to do to this country. But the one thing we can't ever do, and that we've always got to do is with these sorts of talks, you've got to leave more hopeful than when you entered the room in the first place. That's what I'm hoping for. That's the aim. <laughs> and if, if you don't, then this is a colossal failure. But we will get there. Let's go to Georgia, yeah. Go beyond hope as well, because hope is, hope is about waiting for something. And I think, actually, it's, it's about action now, and especially 
in this kind of current situation, you know, we've got five years to another election, and I think there are there is so much that needs needs doing, and so much we can do as an opposition by creating a movement. And I just spent the last couple of years travelling around the country talking to young people, and what I found was young people were taking action already, direct action in their communities. And I think if we can build on that and bring it together, we don't need to wait for a leader to kind of come over and save us. I think that we can build it up from the grassroots. So you're a councillor. Mm. Um, in Camden, what are the kind of things that can happen there that can happen before any of the larger structures get in place? It's really difficult as a councillor. We were just talking about this before because um, local government sounds about as unsexy as you can get. Like when I tell people I'm a councillor, they're like, oh, you're a therapist. And I'm like, oh, no, no, not that kind of councillor. And then they're like, so my bins. And I'm like, oh, all the time. And I think it's really easy to cut because you think local government and you think bins, but actually what, what local government spends money on is children's services, is youth services, and our, our whole um, local government infrastructure is just getting uh, torn apart. We'll have lost half our budget by the end of 2017-18. And if you go around the country, youth centres are closing, or 350 youth centres are closed, and all of, that, all of those services are really under threat. So, I mean, it's really tough times in local government. Having said that, on the positive side, I think that, you know, where I am, Labour are in power, and I think that, you know, I see my role really as facilitating between the business community, between the voluntary sector, but also with citizens and getting everyone together um, to do what we can to combat inequality in that local area. And at that local level, I think you really can get people involved in politics. Mm. Uh, Suzanne, you ran to be an MP in 2010, is that right? I did, yeah, but only for three weeks. Um, <laughs> it was a sort of anarchist gesture because I don't like uh, tribal sort of politics. I didn't want to vote. Like many people, I felt my vote didn't count and I live in a safe Labour seat, so whether I voted or not didn't make a difference. I wasn't satisfied with any of the parties. I also wanted to explore the process of democracy because it all depends on... The whole process, the political process, depends on the idea that any of us could stand, any of us could represent any, anybody else, everyone else. And, but to test that out, actually, you can only stand if you are from a big party and you have loads of money. And, you know, I had Labour people telling me exactly how much it would cost to win a safe seat, you know, costed down to the last penny. So... The idea that I'm quite interested in the idea of new forces forming, new political parties. I'm part of something that's just been set up now called the Women's Equality Party because I think the opposition won't come from just the Labour Party. I think it will come from Greens, from the Women's Equality Party, from people who are prepared, prepared to make alliances against the Tories. I do not think opposition for me right now and hasn't for many years is in the Labour Party. So you're all nodding there when Suzanne mentioned new forces. Um, Oh, and I know that's something you've been working on for a few years now with the People's Assembly. Is that something that's going to become even more important? Well, I think that point about party politics is a, is a really important one because I think there's quite a narrow view of politics sometimes, which is very top-down. Basically, a few political advisors at the top who you know, devise policies without much consultation. And I don't see politics as a soap opera at the top of society. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't see it like that. I see politics, the way we've always got change, isn't because of the goodwill and generosity of powerful people. You know, The powerful didn't wake up one day and think, oh, I'm feeling generous, I'll give women the vote today. People had to fight for that at great cost. And the history of this, of this country, whether it be the suffragettes, 
the Chartists of the 19th century fought for democracy, again, great personal sacrifice and cost. Those who built the welfare state and the NHS, yeah, you had a Labour government that came to power in 1945 to do that, but that was the product of people who fought for generations to fight for the principle of public health care and a welfare state uh, which eradicated many of the ills that define our society. So for me, it's not about being passive and seeing democracy as something you do every five years, you just go out and vote. You've got to organise in your own communities, whether it be tax justice, the base of the fact that at the moment people at the top often don't pay their taxes, or big accountancy firms uh, are seconded to government. They help design the tax laws and tell their clients how to avoid the laws they themselves have written in the first place, whether it be the fact uh, that we have five million people languishing on social housing waiting lists, millions at the mercy of private landlords uh, charging rip-off rents, whether it be the fact that millions of workers don't have secure jobs. And if we all just wait around for whoever becomes Labour leader to come out and try and sort this out, or the Corbyn fan, uh, good, uh, uh, or, or obviously the Conservative Party, good luck with that, then I don't think that's going to work. People have to organise from below. Uh, and that's the great tradition in this country. We don't talk about it enough. When we talk about traditions, it's often it's quite a right-wing concept in a lot of ways. It's about kings and queens and parliamentary acts and prime ministers. But I actually think the way we change things, and tax justice is one example, UK Uncut, which was mostly made up of young people who are furious at the fact that we were told that there's no money left, that you can't afford to prop up basic services, that you have to strip away support for disabled people. And they said, no, 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 come on. Billions of pounds every year lost because the rich won't pay their taxes. And they didn't just think, oh, we'll just vote every five years. No, instead they occupied shops and businesses whose owners weren't paying their taxes properly. And they forced that issue onto the agenda. That shows, that shows that protest isn't a waste of time. It's not about letting off a bit of steam, about saying, oh, at least I gave it a go. It's about organising to force issues on the agenda instead of waiting for politicians to do something about it. So if you genuinely, people here, want to change things, yes, get involved in a political party, apart from UK, the Tories, the Liberal Democrats. Uh, but, <laughs> but as well as that, as well as that, get involved in one single issue, whether it be tax justice, the living wage, whether it be public ownership, whatever it might be, and organise with other people like you and force that issue on the agenda. If UK and Cup can do it, then any other campaign can do it as well. So is there a... Given that people have been doing that with UK and Cut and lots of other sort of issue-based campaigns like that, yet we still got the election result we did... Well, can we talk about why they got the election Yeah, I think we should get okay. on to that. So, so there's clearly a kind of disconnect between the stuff people campaigned about there and then how people voted. Well, we'll maybe differ on why, I think, why we think Labour lost. For me, it was three main reasons. Firstly, the double whammy of Scotland. Now, Labour lost... Uh, Scotland was their heartland. Their first ever leaders came from Scotland, like Keir Hardy. I've named my cat after Keir Hardy. Um, and, um, you know, this was the heartland of Labour. They lost 40 out of 41 seats to a party which positioned itself on the anti-austerity left. But that adds a double whammy effect because in England and Wales, the Conservatives and the media, because of the fact that Labour could only come to power because of that collapse with the support of the Scottish National Party, fanned English resentment and nationalism 
you'll only get a Labour government with, if it's propped up by, mm. by, a, by a party that wants to break up the country. You had Nicola Sturgeon with, you know, the, those posters with, with Ed, Ed Miliband, Miliband in his pocket. In yeah. a pocket. And because Ed Miliband often came across as weak and Nicola Sturgeon is a formidable, one of the most formidable politicians in this country, uh, that worked incredibly well. The second was the myth of overspending by the last Labour government. I was an arch critic of Blair and Brown. How perverse then that someone like myself had to make the point that the reason we had this economic disaster wasn't because Labour spent too much money on schools and hospitals and nurses and teachers, every penny of which was backed by the Conservatives because the banks plunged this country into economic disaster. But they didn't make that case, did they? And then it was this idea of why hand the keys back to the driver who crashed the car. And the final problem was no coherent alternative. They tried to win by being the political wing of which magazine? You know, being a, basically a, a consumer rights organisation, throwing random policies into the other. Uh, the Conservatives had a clear, coherent message. Apart from that, Labour's campaign was great. But it wasn't, it wasn't for me, it's not this idea, people have this idea that because 24% of eligible voters voted for the Conservative Party, we've become this arch right-wing you know, country. That's the lowest share of the vote the Conservatives have ever won an election in this country. We're not suddenly this right-wing, uber you know, right-wing country, the failures of Labour and the Labour leadership are clear, but their failures are theirs alone. They're not the rest of our failures. And it's up to us to give people hope, to show there's a genuine alternative uh, to all the problems and injustices in our society. So don't mourn, organise, and don't ever think for one second that May the 7th marked some great total triumph for conservatism. It didn't. Labour's failure was that. It wasn't the conservatives who emerged victorious. <laughs> Suzanne, do you agree with that? I agree with parts of it, but the reality is that um, right through Europe we have, uh, you know, right-wing governments, and I think we have to put that into perspective. I, I, yeah, I mostly agree with Owen, except I think on, on the Scotland issue, I am totally for independence for Scotland. Um, I think that's a progressive position. I never understood why Labour came against, was against it for people. You know, no taxation without representation. It's a basic left-wing principle. We should have, you know... To me, the left-wing Scots position was always to be independent. I don't really believe in the United Kingdom. I don't believe it's united. I don't believe in the king. Why would I support the UK? Uh, so when the Tories picked up on, you know, that there was going to be this terrible division between England and Scotland and all of that, you know, I thought that was... And, and played to that fear, I think it was clear. One of the things that really interests me that I think we can all talk about is that moment of, of the exit polls at 10 o'clock on, on, on election night where we had all followed the polls and we all thought it was going to be close except the few reporters on the ground who were telling us in a very uneasy way, people who travel around the country, I mean, this is Mayor Colper, this is about journalism, the media kept telling people what they, want, what they thought was going on from London, and that's not good enough, and it never was good enough, and it certainly wasn't good enough in the election. It was a total failure of reporting, except in a few, few places. So journalists have to be out there. Everyone has to be out there. And that moment at 10 o'clock when we saw the exit polls, I mean, I was at a New Statesman party, and for 10 minutes, very, very clever people explained to me why those exit polls were wrong. But everybody knew... They were right. As soon as they were set, you know, that strange cognitive dissonance, which had actually been going on for five years <laughs> since they elected Ed Miliband. And everybody knew that it wasn't quite somehow right, but no one could do anything about it. And now it's going to happen again. Um, we've, they've got 
everything is focused on leadership, and that's the complete opposite of the stuff Owen is saying, which I agree with about movements, about a horizontal organisation, about people organising themselves. What we've got is this absolute focus on leadership. And if you talk to Labour Party people, and it's, you know, they immediately brand you as by, by which leader you want. And that, it's not about a leader. It's about a social movement that can, that can propel a leader to power. And no one thinks that any of the people that are now, you know, up for... Con uh, would possibly be Labour leader, are going to make it. No one thinks that at all. What is happening? Why are we having a leadership contest so soon? Why can't we just have an interim leader? Why can't people look at what's happened? Because, as Owen said, it is only 24% of the vote. But you're not going to bring these people back to Labour who... who you know, the idea, one of the key strategies was that all Lib Dem voters would go back to Labour. Why did anyone think that? They came from the Tories and they went back to the Tories. I mean, I think it was just a really poor strategy on, in, in lots of ways. And I think we can blame the media for certain things, but we can't just keep saying right-wing media, um, get Corbyn in. Corbyn will be crucified, not just by the right-wing media, by the left-wing media, for all sorts of reasons. I can go into them if you want to. But Please do. He, well, uh, you know, people don't like his support, or, or his, uh, his statements about being friends with Hamas and Hezbollah. People don't like, um, you know, lots of, lots of his history. He is going to be 70 by the time of the next election. I would like a young person to represent my children, not me, but my children. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it really, really has to pass to the next generation. I think that's an interesting one, and in saying that she thinks a younger leader is the right one for her children. I mean, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's about the characteristics of the individual. I think it's about the ideas, and I think that's a bit I really agreed with you about. So I don't, I don't mind if somebody's mm. older, young, whatever, as long as they've got a really, really clear narrative about the future and where the Labour Party fits into that future. And I think one of the main reasons I think we lost is because we let the Conservatives set the tone of a debate. You know, it was a debate about austerity that the Conservatives owned and, and Labour were just responding to it. And I almost feel the leadership race is continuing to do that. And I think that, I think that Ed Miliband started to ask some really good questions about what, what kind of capitalism we want, what kind of economy do we want to live in. And actually, we should have taken that further and make the kind of debate about growth and force the Conservatives to answer to a Labour Party agenda. And I think that about so many of the questions... Um, and just the point about Scotland, and, you know, with, with my research, I went around the country, I talked to lots of young people in Scotland and across the UK, and actually what I found is that their values were very similar. You know, there's not this massive difference. The young people in Scotland were very global-looking, they were very pro-EU, maybe we can talk about the EU in a bit. Um, they, um, they were progressive, and I think actually the Labour Party missed a trick because... I've, I mean, I'm still quite tribal, and I, I do believe in the Labour Party, but at the moment they're not representing young people from working class backgrounds they're just not joining them they're not involving them and those young people don't then have political representation why, so why think, do you think that is incidentally well i think there's a broader issue in that young people aren't really joining political parties only 15 percent identify with a political party they're not joining trade unions they're not joining kind of formal institutions but they are incredibly politically involved but they tend to be outside of those kind of traditional formal because young people are incredibly aspirational. I know that word has almost been killed um, and should never really be used, but that's what I really found, you know. They, they really want to start their own businesses. They, have, they, they, they want to own their own homes. They, they want more from their future, but they're also aspirational for society. So I think if we can plug into that um, across the UK, then that's, a, that's somewhere to start. Suzanne, you mentioned you're involved with a new political party. Yeah. Um, what 
what was the idea behind trying to join the sort of existing structure like that? Okay, well, um, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Georgia said actually about um, young people and just engage. It's not that you have to engage them. What happened in Scotland was that, you know, it happened from, from roots up and organisation and, and people thinking that what they did mattered. Mm in a way that people often in England feel that voting doesn't make them matter in any significant way. Um, our thing, the Women's Equality Party, which doesn't really officially launch until September, was, came out of the idea um, that even in really, really sort of traditional structures like the House of Commons, if we wait for the democratic process to happen in terms of representation of women, for instance, to have 50-50, I mean, that basic, we'd have to wait five more elections, i.e. 25 years. And some of us haven't got time to wait 25 years. So we organised meetings, and we are deliberately non-partisan. We will work with anyone who will work with us, and our aims are, you know, bringing to, to, into the public eye the statistics on domestic violence, working for an end against violence against women, you know, very basic sort of feminist demands, 50% representation in Parliament, better representation in the media, equal parenting, better childcare. These very simple demands. We don't mind what you are, we don't mind what party you're in. You can join us, but your political party won't maybe let you join us because the way it works, already um, we have had meetings with every major political party except Labour, because the constitution of Labour is if you join Labour, you cannot join another political party. The Greens can accommodate us. They can change their constitution fairly easily. Scottish Labour actually have approached us. The Tories, of course, are opportunistic, so they have approached us. The Lib Dems have approached us. Because we, since we started, we had much, like thousands and thousands of emails. We have 56 branches throughout the country. We only started at the end of March. There is a basic interest in pushing the equality agenda. And it's very interesting for me, coming from the left, working with people in a non-partisan way. Uh, you know, I can even work with Lib Dems. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a strange thing, because the enthusiasm of the, at the meetings, and it's lots of young women too, has been incredible. So that's just where I'm choosing to put my energy. And anyone can look at our organization, look at our website. As I say, we don't launch officially till September but we will make a difference. The reason that we're a party as opposed to a pressure group is because the only way you can change politics or change traditional politics is by threatening to take their vote. Mm. Like, why isn't Labour 50-50? Why isn't... The Lib Dems have no women, we know that. Um, the Tories, you know, have their token women. To push this stuff, you have to threaten them. The minute you threaten them, you're invited to the House of Commons to see them. And that's the way it works. So we're not a pressure group. We will take your votes. And we will also have MPs, not just from voting, by people who are already in Parliament defecting to us. That will happen before the next election. Um, it's interesting and a bit concerning what you say about Labour not being able to accommodate you. I know the Greens do have a very flexible process the way they make their policies, meaning they can make changes quickly. Labour doesn't. Um, you know, there's a lot of waiting for conference, floor motions, all that kind of stuff that has to happen. There has to be a kind of critical mass of feeling before anything can really change. Is that, that just that little bit to do with the Women's Equality Party, that seems to me to speak to a broader problem, right? Labour is slow moving, yeah. not react, 
not reactive. Well, it's, it's a shame because obviously we want to work with people in the Labour Party and a lot of people, oh, people come from the Labour Party and they come from other parties and the majority of the emails we get come from people who used to vote Labour, don't vote Labour anymore, were, are interested in politics but don't know where to go. Na I would say natural Labour voters, but no, they don't want to, uh, they, they don't want to join the Labour Party. And it's because, you know, you see it in this leadership contest, that it's very, very clunky. They don't have a mechanism to do things quickly. They don't, can't react quickly. It's a very old party and it's got some fantastic traditions, but it means that it's almost, you know, it's not really viable, I think, in it, as, as it is. It has to change, and I really agree with that. And this is some really active Labour person. No, 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 good. And I knock on a lot of doors, and I love the Labour Party, and I think that I'm very proud of its history, but I absolutely agree, because I just spoke to thousands of young people and none, none of them were even contemplating joining the Labour Party. And I think that that's a massive problem. And I think if you're going to be a modern party and represent people, then you absolutely have to open up. So I think, you know, we should yeah. open up selection, have open primaries. We need to, you know, the Labour Party in the past was embedded in trade unions and embedded in communities. And, it, and at the moment, it's like, I think the average age, there's some research done uh, recently is 51, 80% um, of Labour Party members are from kind of a higher social class. It's not, it, it really needs to open up. It needs to, it needs to campaign on community-based issues and it needs to give, to give people the opportunity to take more power themselves and kind of express their individuality and, and, and lead on campaigns as part of a broader collective. When we're talking about women's rights, it's, it's also good to be the uh, token man on a platform for a change, uh, <laughs> as things should be. Um, but... But, um, you should be squeezed in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think there's a general problem with politics that includes the Labour Party that's become very professionalised. The Labour Party was set up to represent working people in the broadest possible terms. Um, most people, when it was founded, tended to work in mines, in steelworks, in factories, as personal servants. These days, more likely to work in call centres and offices and in in, uh, in in supermarkets. But those people still need a voice now as much as they ever did. And the danger is we've ended up with this professionalisation, people becoming special advisors, parachuted into constituencies often they've never even heard of, where it becomes this kind of think tanky, wonky, uh, kind of, you know, very elitist, top-down movement, rather, not movement. Uh, for, you know, it should be a movement, a grassroots, bottom-up movement. That's what it was founded to be. But... When we're talking about it not being reactive enough, well, unfortunately, it is being very reactive at the moment. And reactionary, maybe. Well, and yeah. indeed reactionary, because for me, it was, it was a moment of horror, I think, when we got to the stage where this party that was set up to represent and fight for working people, that under their interim leader, they were talking about supporting the Conservatives, limiting support for kids of supermarket workers, of cleaners, of the people who keep this country ticking, if they have more than two kids. And what will that do? Well, let's just think about it, you know? I find it incredible. We've had in this country for years now the constant demonisation of unemployed people, feckless scroungers living in mansions made out of widescreen television sets, and now they're coming for low-paid workers because they've tried to turn low-paid workers against the unemployed. Ah, you're struggling. You know, you've got these people down the road. They're not getting off their arse. They're watching Jamie Kyle all day whilst you're working so hard. How is it, you know, rather than be angry at the fact their wages are too low and their in-work benefits have been cut, they should turn on unemployed people. But now they're coming for low-paid people. They're saying... They're saying... To, well, we've also got the attack on the under-25s. You're quite right. But with this attack on tax credits, they're saying... They're trying to say to low-paid workers, you've got one kid, why should you be supporting 
a family of low-paid workers who've got three kids. And what that does is it not only punishes... Well, it punishes the children, firstly. It's the children who will have colder homes, who will have less hot meals in their belly. But you end up with a situation where a party set up to represent working people under its current leadership is supporting driving the children of low-paid workers into poverty. And when we get to that stage... It's an existential question. How can a party set up to represent working people possibly ever support a policy that will drive the kids of low-paid workers into poverty because they happen to have two siblings rather than one? Where we ended up in. And that's why it's up to all of us. We've got to change that. We can't accept that. You know, politics fails when we end up where politics becomes so, you know, shifts off to a position where we're where we're debating whether or not it's a good idea to drive the kids of low-paid workers into poverty and Labour should support that. We shouldn't be there. But it is up to all of us to put pressure on them to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, let's come back to the, um, the future of Labour, which at the moment is embodied in the four people running to be its leader. The, the point about this leadership election is, for me, it's about, you know, it's, it's about politics, to quote Tony Benn. You know, Tony Benn died Always. last year and I, I miss him very much in... Partly, actually, I think the title of this is, is informed by Tony Benn because he said the way you get change is the burning flame of anger at injustice and the burning flame of hope at a better world. And there's lots of anger out there, lots of fear, but not very much hope. And when there's not very much hope, people become resigned. They accept injustice is inevitable, just the way things are. You grit your teeth, you take the blows, and uh, all that anger has turned on each other. Immigrants, unemployed people, public sector workers, this policy of divide and rule... That, you know, you should be angry not the fact you're being robbed, but your next-door neighbour's been not being robbed quite as much as you have. And that is kind of politics today. But for me, I think the whole point of, for example, what Jeremy Corbyn's campaign's doing is putting issues on the agenda which would otherwise be completely ignored. And these are issues which millions of people support, that we should have a genuine living wage, not a policy which will leave the working poor worse off, that we should deal with the housing crisis by... Uh, controlling rents and letting councils build housing which would create jobs and get the economy going and also bring down the social housing waiting list that we should instead of a railways which is fragmented and inefficient where it's cheaper to fly halfway across the world than it is to travel by train in your own country that we should bring those railways back under the control of the people of this country that, a popular one. that the richest in society you know the wealth the wealth for the richest 1,000 people has doubled in the last few years during one of the great economic traumas in the history of this country. They can afford to pay a bit more money. They won't be thrown out on the streets if they did. Genuine tax justice, where we have rights which workers have in Europe, and if they're good enough for European workers, they're good enough for workers in this country uh, as well. And, you know, it's to put issues like that on the agenda, because otherwise you have candidates dancing on the head of a pin. There's nothing more the Scottish National Party would like in Scotland uh, than to have three candidates who would be supporting austerity and playing into the idea, see, Labour, they're the Red Tories. They want to spend billions of pounds on weapons of mass destruction, Trident, which we will never use, and if we did, we'll exterminate humanity several times over. Instead of using that money to build homes and create jobs and invest in our young people. You know, and, and for me, that's what the Labour leadership has to be about. The test is inspiring people and giving people hope and if it's just this technocratic you know exercise about how much people can agree with the underlying principles of the conservatives with a few nuances here and there then nothing will ever change and no one will be convinced so yes that's exactly how i see it and that's how it should be but it is up to not just this leadership 
It can't be an inward-looking thing. It has to be about ordinary people. We have to call win. Uh, that's win. exactly the question I'm I was afraid. about to ask. Well, the odds are stacked. Um, so, I mean, this idea that I saw this polling yesterday yeah. leaked anonymously by a certain <laughs> campaign. He's the underdog, and the odds are hugely stacked. The uh, polling says him. not, though. Sorry? The polling says not. The polling says he's No, winning. no, no. That po well, I'd love to see who's leaked that polling and why. Uh, we don't give up our but, sources. But it, I think what's been done, that you've got this Get Corbyn campaign at the moment. And they're going for him in a, in, in a very vicious and aggressive way. Uh, and, and the whole point of that is if you go for someone as a person, you do that in order not to engage with what they're saying. And the right stock um, um, response is um, they thought the left ha had died. It was gone. And they're irritated that it exists in any form. And their position is it has to be ridiculed and demonized and attacked and undermined in that way. But for me, you know, He's an underdog, but he's putting on issues which millions of people do support. And what is the point of our political system if millions of people out there want our railways back under public ownership, they want the rich to pay their taxes, they want an alternative uh, to austerity, they want a, a, an industrial strategy like Germany to create renewable energy jobs to take on the environmental and the jobs crisis. Millions of people support that, but the Labour Party can't have a leadership contest that actually has those ideas and policies reflected. It would be a farce, a joke, a travesty if those ideas weren't there, and that's exactly what that campaign's all about. What Jamie Corbyn, as I say, is a lifelong activist. He's fought for things which at the time seemed to be unpopular. The odds are against, you know, we shouldn't be arming Saddam Hussein. And he stood up when the Kurds were gassed in 1988, when our government... Not only, I'm sorry, I'll just be honest, it wasn't just that our government was arming Saddam Hussein, but the Labour leadership at the time failed to oppose the arming of a dictatorship which murdered its own people. And people like Saddam Hussein, uh, sorry, when he was in power and he was supported by the West, people like Jamie Corbyn stood in a lonely way with placards outside the Iraqi embassy, standing in solidarity with Iraqis and Kurds, and he's got a long-standing connection with the Kurds, saying this is a disgrace. How dare the West backs and props up this brutal dictator because he's at war with Iran. And he was castigated and demonised. And it's the same with LGBT rights. Oh, everyone loves LGBT rights. now, don't they, in the mainstream? You get a Tory government introducing equal marriage. But at the time, in the 1980s, when gay people attacked as posts and perverts and deviants, when most people in the country still at the time had quite, I'm afraid, an unsympathetic view of them. And they were people who protested in the streets, who were spat at and battened by police officers. People like Jeremy Corbyn were lonely voices in that horrible time where young teenagers could not count on very many people to go on television and fight for their ground. And he was. And he was. And it's the same. It's the same with apartheid. Nelson Mandela, this secular saint, this global statesman, but in the 1980s, he was attacked as a terrorist and an extremist by our government and people like Jeremy Corbyn marched for him. So all that's I'm saying that's is all people the past, are though. Is he the future? No, but I think he's vindicated then and he will be vindicated again yeah. on issues, whether it be the living wage, a genuine living wage, workers' rights, public ownership, tax justice. These are the ideas of the environment and climate change. These are the great causes of the future. And I think he's putting those issues properly on the agenda. He was vindicated then, those issues will be vindicated again, definitely, of course. Now, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it a day there, but I must say thank you very much to all of our panellists, but thank you very much for coming, and thank you very much for coming.
On Friday evening in a packed literary arena, I sat down with the veteran broadcaster Andrew Marr and the social anthropologist Kate Fox, author of Watching the English, for an extremely wide-ranging discussion touching on class, politics, social media, national identity, and why the BBC is in a state of existential threat. Here are some highlights. What do you think makes up the political part of our identity? Is it simply who we vote for on election day, or, or is there a bit more to it than that? Whichever of you wants to start. Well, if I kick off, I mean, I think the problem that we have is we are sold a way of living which basically says you are what you buy and you are essentially a shopper. We are all consumers. And that is far too thin an identity for most people to survive on. And therefore, lots of people up and down the country in different ways are trying to build themselves new identities. I came down this morning, a long journey. I started at 6 a.m. this morning in the far northwest of Scotland. And Scotland is going through something like a genuine political revolution, which is all about identity and the desperate desire to belong. A bleak proposition that we don't, we don't know, um, a lot of us don't know what the parties that we're voting for stand for. Um, we've got this sort of slightly depressing idea of us as just shoppers, consumers. Uh, it hasn't necessarily always been that way, has it? I mean, you think about um, going back 50 years or so, the, the, there are strong senses of um, political loyalties and affiliations in, in class communities in parts of the country. Is that something that has eroded away over time? Well, it's been destroyed by the market. I think we have to start with the basics. What is the world in which we now live? It is a world almost totally dominated by very, very powerful, dynamic markets. And without remembering the quotes, I go back to Karl Marx. I hope the Daily Mail is not in the tent. Um, and Marx's vision of the market as, above all, an extraordinarily dynamic thing which completely upended, it froze, it unfroze all previous social relationships. It was constantly moving. The market challenges and changes everything all the time and produces great wealth. And I think Marx was a bit like Milton, who was said when he was doing Paradise Lost, he, he was on the devil's side without knowing it. Well, I think, I think a lot of the time Marx writes as if he's quite pro-capitalism without knowing it. Capitalism is an extraordinarily dynamic system, and the big question today is, are you against it or are you in favor of, of these massive, massive global social changes it's producing generation by generation? And if you're against it, do you have a very clear idea of what a revolution would actually look like and can you defend that? And if you're in favor of it, what's the job? And I would propose to you the job of a political party of the centre-left in this world is not to be anti-business or anti-the market. In our world, that's like being anti-oxygen. Um, the answer is to look at what the market cannot and will not do. The market, in its dynamism, produces massive and very fast social inequalities all the time, and it produces a huge amount of mess, environmental mess, social mess, mess in communities. And the job of politics is to deal with the mess and ameliorate the social inequalities. And when we have a Labour Party, which is clear enough about that and is able to put it as clearly as that, then I think we'll be moving somewhere. Sorry. (laughs) 
Andrew Murray is not announcing his belated candidacy for, <laughs> for Labour not. leadership. I just thought I'd make that clear in case anyone, uh, anyone leaks that. <laughs> I'm going to sound like the 2010 general election now. I agree with Andrew. <laughs> But I think, I mean, I'm always going back to your question since I can't possibly do better than that as, a, as an answer. Going back to your question about, you know, have things... I'm always a bit suspicious of the notion that... Um, things used to be clear and simple, and there used to be a clear dichotomy between left and right and working yeah, class and, yeah. and Tory, and that the posh people voted Tory and the, and, and the working classes voted Labour, and so on and so forth. Uh, we always like to think, don't we, that the times that we live in are more fast-paced and changing more rapidly and dramatically than ever before any previous era. I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. I mean, obviously, the there has been such a thing as a working-class Tory for a very long time, because until very, very recently, 70% of us um, self-identified as working-class. That's changed in, in the past 10 years, virtually, 20 years anyway, um, uh, for various reasons. Um, but obviously, you know, if those 70% were all vo voting Labour, then Baldwin and Chamberlain and Churchill and so on would never have been elected, let alone Cameron and, and whatnot. So, I mean, these, these factors have always been here. Um, I, I don't think there ever was a nice, clear, simple division. I don't think life ever was quite as simple as that. But it's got odder, Kate, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, when we now have George Osborne declaring that the, he's leading the Workers' Party. <laughs> now, I'm old enough to remember about when there was another kind of Workers' Party, and it wasn't George Osborne. <laughs> I mean, it's become more extreme, this, this political um, transvesticism. Yes, I mean, I think this is the sort of parties continue. I mean, this is what I was saying a minute ago about the total lack, the, the parties not having a clear idea of their mm. own identity. And therefore, it's a bit difficult to, to expect the rest of us to, to, to have a clear idea, A, of what they stand for and B, of what, what we want from them. Um, well, let's, let's just talk a little bit more about class, because um, I think it's really important. And um, so there was a book about the 1990s that came out relatively recently called A Classless Society. Um, <laughs> well, not again. Um, but, Kate, presumably you would disagree with the idea that our notions of class have been kind of broken down or eroded. Well, it's another thing that we've been being told for a very, very long time. I think people were saying that back in the, you know, after the First World War, allegedly the class system had disintegrated and so on. And, you know, But I'm it has sure changed, hasn't I, it? Well, and, you know, and the BBC, keep, people keep coming out with these new definitions of the social classes. And to be honest, they're so unmemorable that I can't remember a single one of the names that the BBC, I think, did one a, a year one or so. One day, man, all that kind uh, of thing. Yeah, but, you know, the even, even sort of slightly more um, intelligent attempts like that BBC thing. Um, I, I still can't remember a single of the names they came up with. So, I mean, the thing is, there is no such thing. You know, the, the, there is no possibility of our becoming a classless society because there is no such thing as a classless society. Every known human culture has a system of status and methods of indicating one's position That's in that true. status system. Um, so the idea, you know, if such and a sort of... classes form very quickly. Exactly. Um, you know, even where there is very little um, economic wealth to distribute in the first place or where it's relatively evenly distributed, you know, like in hunter-gatherer yes. societies, there is still status difference. There are still status differences. People still have their place within that culture. So I, I think the notion that we can have a class... Now, having said that, I think what's happened here 
um, recently has been that there hasn't been you know social social mobility has remained static you know Orwell is still right I think back in the 1940s he called this the most class-ridden society bad. under the sun he is still absolutely spot on nothing has changed whether you define class in terms of economic capital social capital cultural capital nothing has changed in terms of economic capital the gap between rich and poor is getting wider and wider um, in terms of social and cultural capital, well, social mobility has been static since the 1970s, I think, hasn't yeah. it? Um, what we have had is an illusion of social mobility, and this comes back to what you were saying, um, and you were saying about the, the, the political parties stealing each other's language and the, and the, the, the Tories talking in terms of being the workers' party and nonsense like that. Um, what has happened is that the group that I call the PLU, because that's what they call themselves, except they don't, they don't um, say it out loud much. It stands for people like us. I'm talking about the upper middle class esta elite establishment um, who refer to themselves as, oh, he's, he's quite PLU, he's not very PLU. Um, and as an anthropologist, you're supposed to call a tribe by its own self-identified endonym, they're called, not by a, an externally imposed exonym, because that's derogatory. So I'll call them by their own little smug self-satisfied endonym. So what the PLU have done is pulled off a con trick, because it used to be the case that 70% of us self-identified correctly and proudly as working class. It's now the exact opposite. In, a, in the space of less than 20 years, it's turned around half of the people who used to call themselves working class now call themselves middle class. And these are C2DE manual workers. And even if they're given the choice, they will even pick middle as opposed to lower middle. So somebody, the PLU, I think, have conned them um, into thinking that they're middle class. As you said, this election was one in which almost everyone uh, called it wrong and, and called it wrong from a variety of sources, polls being one of them, but um, one of them being sort of looking at the online debate. And um, I was wondering um, really how the progress of social media and the internet might have changed our national debate, our political debate, but also broader debate about identity. And Kate, I wondered whether you could say something about whether you think our use of social media and the internet is, is changing the way we're talking to each other in this country. I, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, as you, as you said earlier, I'm trying to write a book that's at least partly about this at the moment. Um, I think that what we're doing, I think that with the Industrial Revolution, um, we, I mean, essentially the, the, the human brain um, evolved, you know, we have evolved, we are wired, if you like, to live in a small tribal society, a small village. Um, the, the human brain, the social wiring of the human brain hasn't changed since... Is it 150 people, they say? Sorry? Is it 150 people 150, that Dunbar's number, exactly. Um, the human brain hasn't really changed since the, the, since the Upper Paleolithic, the Stone Age, 40,000 years ago. Um, and certainly, even as recently as, as 200 years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, um, we were all still living in villages, or at least 75% of us were still living in villages, and the urban centers were much, much smaller than they are now. Even currently, I mean, in, in most parts of the world, people are still, many parts of the world, the majority of, in India, for example, 70% of the population still live in villages. The majority of those villages are fewer than 500 people. This is the kind of world, you know, eight generations is not long enough for natural selection to have evolved 
for us to have evolved any mental, any brain adaptations to modern urban industrialized cities. Uh, we're not adapted for this. It's like a novel environment. It's like putting a tiger in a zoo and then wondering why it behaves oddly and paces up and down. You know, and what people do is measure the cage and, you know, try and adjust things to make it pace a bit less and so on, when, you know, really the tiger is just in a weird environment. Now, we have created, um, us wonderful, ingenious, but pretty flawed humans have created a world in which our kind of Stone Age tribal village-wired brains are extremely uncomfortable. And I think what we're doing with new technologies, new social media in particular, but various others as well, um, is to try and recapture or reinvent, it's a different form, but to reinvent the social dynamics of tribal or village life. And I know that, you know, if you read the, the pundits and the columnists and so on, it's all sneering at people oversharing, for example, on Facebook. Um, and, and, you know, blurting out all the details of their private lives to everybody and do we really need to know what you had for breakfast and all this look at me posting selfies and how it's all shallow and trivial and so on. This is what you read every damn newspaper you open. It drives me crazy because it's nothing of the sort. Mm. These are people... If you look at the kind of conversations that people have on social media and you look at, if you've studied, as I have, the kind of conversations that people have everyday normal conversations in small tribal hunter-gatherer societies, small villages, and so on, they are identical. Basically, people in small tribal societies talk constantly about anything that pops into their head, including what they had for breakfast, and particularly complaint, criticism, and conflict. There's an anthropologist called Polly Weisner who was studying the San Bushmen in the Kalahari, and 34% of their conversations, one of the few anthropologists who actually gives you percentages, normally they have a kind of aversion to numbers. It's, it's all got to be thick description. You take a tiny little thing and describe it to death. But this, this, this woman actually generously gives us numbers. 34% of their everyday conversation when they're in groups of more than five is complaint, criticism, and conflict. A lot of venting, a lot of... I mean, Woody Allen, I think, said that language may be innate, but whining is acquired. I think this shows that... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Actually, whining is innate, and it's something that we humans need to do. We need to vent. We need to criticize. We particularly like the sand bushman, need to take down a peg or two people who get too big for their boots or at least when we perceive that people are getting yeah. too big for their boots. I know, like I being female say, and having an opinion about something can count. Well, well or, being, or being Andrew Marr. Um, I, I, I should say, my personal experience of this, you may, may remember Seuss is the name of that beach where the terrible massacre took place. Well, I'm on Twitter now for my sins. It's very interesting. I find lots. 
And Twitter is divided almost equally between people who regard me as a Marxist stooge and classic BBC leftist who should be expelled for that reason, and people who regard me as a Tory shill. <laughs> and I was interested... You've got it about right, then. ...mildly amused to see that the latest big thing on, on Twitter, as regards me, is a crowdfunding project to get me sent on holiday to Seuss. <laughs> after something else. So, I mean, in terms of the, the, the sheer level of abuse, at least it's inventive and amusing, but... My experience of it is it's mostly abuse. And I, what I think about, certainly about Twitter, is what it's done is it hasn't um, given a platform or legitimized the electorate or voting groups, but activists mm. on, on all sides, people who already have strong views and the confidence to exp uh, express them, um, mainly in my direction, um, have been hugely uh, cheered and, 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 and provoked by it, but not, not the majority of people who get about their lives and who have complicated political views about things. They're mostly on Facebook, I think. Are they? Yeah. Ah, that's next, then. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk a bit about Englishness, because that's something that you're both very interested in. Um, we were talking before. Um, there is widely perceived to be a sort of um, crisis in the English national character. Right. I don't know if one of you wants to... <laughs> Okay, this that. is your special area, so <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you go first, then I'll jump in. All right. I think, I mean, yet again, this is one of those things that we've, we keep being told, you know, every, every week some pundit in the newspapers is telling us that there's either a sea change in the English national character or a crisis, or we're having a national identity crisis. I think we're having a bit of a wobble. I mean, I think that things like devolution, immigration, um, globalization and so on are causing a degree of uncomfortable uncertainty about who or what we are as a nation. But we're hardly alone in this. I mean, if you look across the world, you know, the, the result of global, so-called globalization seems to have been a resurgence of concern about uh, a resurgence of nationalism, um, con demands for devolution, um, uh, independence, etc., etc., in countries, you know, all over the world. Regionalism is on the rise everywhere, that sort of thing. I mean, so this is, you know, this country is not just some weird aberration in having a little bit of a, a resurgence of concern about this. Um, but I wonder if there's any people anywhere in the world who've had their sense of national identity and, uh, and belief shaken as much as the English for various reasons. This was the very first big imperial country, uh, as lots of, of, of black and Asian Britons now say to people who question their right to be here, we are only here because you were over there. And so there was that, the sudden loss of empire, and then the strange switch that was done in the 50s and 60s, where we swapped our old empire for being a cadet part of the American world and imported, in the same language, a massive quantity of American culture. And I think those two things have shaken Englishness more than Frenchness has been shaken or Germanness has been shaken. Every country has its culture. I, the only thing I would disagree with you about, Kate, is that I don't think it's so-called globalisation. I think it really is, and it's right. hard-edged, and it's real, and it's what we are all living through right now. Yeah. That was perhaps the wrong, the yeah. wrong choice of word there. Um, what I meant by that was that we are not becoming a global mono, monoculture. No. Um, that, however real, absolutely I agree, however real and invidious the global influence of the big corporate multinationals and so on may be, um, even the, the, neither they, uh, you know, both they and, and their enemies have overestimated their cultural impact in the sense that, you know, people are still, whether they want to wear Nike trainers or, or drink Coca-Cola or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> 
in, in all parts of the world, they're still willing to fight and die for what is, you know, whatever aspect of their cultural identity is perceived to be at stake. So I think that the, the cultural impact has perhaps been overestimated in that, you know, wearing a certain brand of shoe does not change how you feel about your country, your region, that sort of thing. That's what I meant. We're not big. Sure. A, a world of seven billion people is not going to become a vast monoculture. Absolutely agreed. That's all I meant. Agreed on that, yeah. We, we sort of um, struggle to find things, totems to hang on to of, of Englishness now, but two of the things we do all agree, well, a lot of us agree on are, are kind of icons of, of the English are the BBC and the NHS which are two things that are they're both very much under threat at the moment. I don't know, Andrew, if you want to say something I'm about I'm glad you mentioned You're the that. expert on the BBC. Yeah, cert certainly. Well, the NHS, um, which was part of the post-war settlement, is now under huge pressure because we're growing such a, at such a rate as an aging population, the quantity and the expense of drugs that can be used, the financial pressures on the NHS are such that it cannot, I say to you, it cannot be funded adequately by any democratic government of any stripe for very long. The pressures are always going to grow and grow and grow, and yet we haven't come to terms with what, uh, as it were, a more truncated or modest NHS would feel and look like, and most of us would vote against that. So the NHS is in crisis. The BBC is clearly going through the biggest crisis in its history right at the moment. Um, and we are in an existential threat where we're told on the one hand, because of the license fee, um, that we must just do those things which um, uh, market-orientated broadcasters could not do or would not do, and on the other hand, that we have to be appealed to everybody. And the great trap for us, I think, at the moment, being set by some politicians right at the moment, is saying, well, you know, you don't need to do The Voice. Lots of people don't like The Voice. It's a bit crass. It's a bit crude. Same with Strictly Come Dancing. Pull out of that. Leave those things to the commercial guys. And then when we do, they'll say, but no one's watching you on a Saturday night. You have lost your right to the licence fee. God, it's like the politicians. You can't win, can you? That absolutely right. Um, and so, you know, I, I do feel, because I mean, I'm completely party-free and you can ignore everything I say because they pay me a lot of money to do what I do. But, but that said, I do think that the BBC is part of our national identity and for all its huge faults and failings and all the rest of it, deserves public support. But if it doesn't get public... Thank you. And if we don't get it and have it and earn it, they will kill us, and soon. I think most people would agree with you. I, when I was doing research on this, even people who actually use the term BBC as a synonym for snooty middle class, they'll say she's a bit BBC, but she's all right, really, that kind of thing. Even people who use the term in that way still have a sort of abiding and continuing affection for it. It's a bit like the monarchy, you know, which gets the kind of lukewarm support of, of the majority of the population. I should say, having, having done my pro-BBC thing, I also think that our bigger, you know, the thing that we must now do is do what we do much better. We have to work harder at earning audiences' support than we have. We have to do better drama, we have to do better interviews, and we have to do better news. And we are not as good as we should be, and that's, that's really the challenge for us. While we are under attack, we should not talk except in events like this about the attack. We should just get on quietly and do our jobs, but 20% or 30% better than we were before. Thank you. Um, let, let's have some questions from the audience. There are mics, so please stick your hand up and then uh, wait for a mic to come for you. 
to you before speaking. Let's uh, have right in the, in the middle at the front here. Thanks very much. This is about identity. I think one of the real challenges, both for my party and people generally, is if you talk about English values, where are they different to British values? I think that's a challenge, really. We spoke about great institutions. Well, one of them is the BBC, which the round of applause in here shows we're all going to fight to defend. Uh, but actually, that's a British institution. What is Englishness? That is a real challenge, because... Nothing that I see as Englishness is not Britishness. The I think that's a challenge for us. The English, I would say, I'm going to hand over just a second. The English were too successful too early on. By the time they'd gobbled up the Welsh and the Scots and the Irish, um, you know, life had moved on and everyone was British. I think you'd, you'd go back to the great English radical tradition. You'd go back to the creation of the, the trade unions and the friendly societies and a lot of that part of the English tradition, which goes way, way back from your side of the, the fence. That's what I would... I would identify as particularly English. The English have always been not only the most tolerant people, but also the stroppiest people. And stroppy is good. Kate. Exactly. I mean, I, I think it is a very difficult question, and it's one that I came up against, you know, when I was trying to do the book. I say in the, in the book that there are several reasons why I chose to write about the English rather than the British, and the first of those was sheer laziness. I could only cope with... <laughs> researching one whole nation as opposed to four. I think a lot of Scots and Welsh and um, th those Northern Irish people who still consider themselves British, I know technically it's not part of Great Britain, it's Great Britain, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but there are some who wrote to me because I'd excluded them and said they, they considered themselves British. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of these people would definitely say that these are distinct and separate nations. Culturally, there's a huge amount of overlap um, between, between these four nations or whatever you want to call them. Um, but there are, there are some differences and there were enough for me to, to write about the English apart from just laziness, I think. Can I, can I just jump in and tell you a, a true story which explains what I love as a Scot most about the English? It's from about 1760, Richmond Park which was then owned entirely and run by the, the Crown, for the Crown, as a hunting park. There was a big agitation because local people had used it to go across, um, uh, get from one part of that part of London to another, and they were blocked off by George II. And he closed all the park gates and had um, uh, soldiers and so forth stop to, to ensure that the local people couldn't cross. And a small-time brewer called, believe it or not, John Lewis from Richmond, took the crown to court and said, we, are, we, we have the rights of access to this park and we will defeat you in court. And to everyone's amazement, he, he bet everything, he bet his house on it, and he won. And he defeated the, the royal family. And then um, the, the, the judge came back and said, oh, great, well, you, you, you won your point. Would you like gates smashed in the wall around Richmond Park so people can come through? Or would you like ladders, ladder styes put over the walls? And he said, I'd like uh, ladders put over the walls and the judge said as a matter of interest why and he said because if there's gates there'll be uh, if there's holes there'll be gates and if there's gates most English people will assume they're not allowed to go through them but if there are ladders they'll know that it's all right and the code to the story by the way was that um, the same John Lewis took the crown to court again because the the steps on the ladders were too wide to allow women in skirts to go over that, to me, is the essence of English stroppiness. I love that. 
I think I think we'll have to um, we'll have to call it a day there, unfortunately. Um, Kate and Andrew will both be uh, signing books afterwards uh, in the bookshop in the corner there. Um, so it just leaves me to um, say thank you very much to uh, Kate Fox and Andrew Ma. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Finally, Professor John Mullen speaks to director Richard Curtis and novelist Kate Moss about marriages in literature. Okay, so this is Kate Moss and Richard Curtis. Hi, and I'm, I'm the stooge to the stars. And um, I'm sure you know who they are, but I'll do a little bit of a, an introduction. Uh, Richard is, well, he's really played Cupid to a generation of cinema goers, which is very appropriate because we're going to be talking about fictional weddings and the marriages that follow from them this afternoon. And, of course, Richard, is direct, Richard wrote the screenplay for Four Weddings and a Funeral and other wedding-directed stories, I think it's fair to say. And, and we'll, is that fair? That's okay. There, I've done 14 weddings. I've now 14 weddings, okay. They've all ended well. We look, like, we look like a folk a cappella group, <laughs> don't you? I feel we should break into Man of Constant Sorrow. And on my immediate right, Kate Moss, who, of course, a very successful novelist and Renaissance woman, really. We're talking about marriages and I wanted to start by asking well Richard first maybe why weddings are why why has he got all those weddings in the screenplays of all these films why why do storytellers novelists but also filmmakers love weddings what are they useful for um, I think I mean there are lots of reasons in my particular area it's because they're like the one really formal setup that's still remaining in our lives. When we were young, we used to write lots of sketches about, you know, headmasters and priests and all that kind of stuff. And weddings is just like so many things can go wrong at every single point. So it's, if you're, I've written so many because there are just so, you know, does anyone know any reason why these people should not be married? There's a good setup for something catastrophic. Have you remembered the ring? There's something good for something catastrophic. Will the bride actually turn up? Set up for cat catastrophic. So look, it's like the best dramatic setup that there is possible. I think that's, that's the sort of comedy reason. And then the nice reason is that they are the one moment when human beings tend to be joyful. <laughs> is, that, is that why they're, why they're appealing, Kate? Oh, well, anyone who's read any of my books know that there aren't very many weddings, and when there are, they're strictly Game of Thrones. You know, everybody dies or nobody turns up and they're miserable. Um, and I'm, I love Richard's weddings. It's just I, can't, I like uh, weddings being the beginning of something rather than the end. So they are the moment at which people are revealed to be the baddies or the goodies or they're hiding something. And so I think you're right, all the stuff that can happen at a wedding, everybody who reads it or sees it knows the codes. They know that there are gonna be two people standing at the front of whatever the room is. They know there's gonna be a possibility of someone interrupting, you know, the Jane Eyre moment when suddenly, does anybody know? And it's, yes, he's married already, that husband-to-be. Um, so for me, 
they're the beginning of the rest of life rather than the end of the story. So I'm topsy-turvy. <laughs> I think what Richard said is absolutely right, is that everybody in any culture gets that a wedding is at the heart of things. And so it doesn't matter where you are or what period of history. It's that idea that there'll be two people who bring with them all these other people who probably don't like each other will get on. And it's about power and it's about negotiation and it's about people being forced to do things and it's about money. And so anybody can come to the wedding and the wedding and understand that the potential for the whole of every story is there. And it's, the, it's exactly right. It's the only thing that is probably in common with every single culture, that everybody knows about that union being at the heart of things. In, in your yeah. films, Richard, people at weddings, the other people are all getting off with each other at weddings. Is that not right? Yes, I think that's compulsory too. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking, though, about... Uh, if you're talking about... Uh, you know, a Homer, the cinematic equivalent of Homer is the Godfather, and that starts with a very long wedding, and the deer hunter starts with a very long wedding. And that's also, they are the statement of the best that things can be after which life starts to take its toll. So it's yeah. not only that the seeds are sown at the wedding, but that it's the one place, as it were, you can start to feel that everything's okay and in balance, and then the story goes, story goes wrong. That's the reason I've never got married. <laughs> so it won't go wrong. Can we ask how many people here are married? And then can we ask how many of you are still happy? Wait a second. So, There's more so wait a second. Hands up. hands up how many are married. Let's keep them there. And then how many still happy? Oh, yeah. that shows that fiction is all alive <laughs> and that everyone in the world is happy. But the how many of you are intending to get married? <laughs> One day. Not many. That's interesting. Well, how many Going are there happily unmarried? Yeah, how many are happily divorced? No. Oh. <laughs> well done, madam. <laughs> Quite a lot of stories and some of Richard's films end with a wedding, in effect, or on the very eve of a wedding. And um, it's not just film. You know, most rom-coms end that way. Jane Austen novels end that way. I think Shakespeare's As You Like It has got four weddings. Yeah. Yeah. And the goddess Hymen as well yeah. on stage at the end. And I was wondering if we might think a bit about those stories which end with a wedding and what we think about those and how many of those we believe in, which we believe, which newlyweds we Would think might together. have gone on to stay together, Richard. Well, I think we should also ask the audience, because in my films, it's definitely none. Oh, um, no. Well, otherwise, for a start, Hugh Grant would be a bigamist, or he'd have to be married <laughs> to so many people. Um, I'm ch I mean, really, it's tough. I think the couple in Brief Encounter stay together, because they were unhappy beforehand, yes. and they're happy, unhappy yeah. after. They have low expectations. Um, yeah. Um, I've just done an adaptation of ECO Trot, and I think that um, Dustin Hoffman and Judy Dench will stay together because they've only got a year or two. A <laughs> um, year or two to go. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it is, it is... I mean, the problem with making films is the moment you've made them, you then... They just become a very expensive diary. So when I watch my films, I just know that you doesn't talk to Julia any longer. And so I know they're not together. Yeah. <laughs> That's very disappointing to hear that Cupid has such a 
pessimistic analysis of his own happy story. Yeah. Kate, what, 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 what um, famous, famous newlyweds in fiction do you think will make it and which won't? Well, I, I think what Richard said is absolutely right. If, as a novelist, what you're doing is, it's brilliant, Joanna Trollope once put it like this, and I think it's the best description of how a writer thinks about her or his characters which is that you write the story you're going to write, and it might end with a wedding or it might start with a wedding. But Joanna Trollope once said, writing was like standing on a platform waiting for the train to come in. And the train comes in, and you get onto the train, and you get into a carriage, and you eavesdrop on the people in the carriage. And then the train falls into another station, and you get off, and the train goes on without you. So as a writer, if I finish with a wedding, and in my gothic thriller where there's a lot of death, happening, the taxidermist's daughter, it does end with a, a, a wedding. But the minute I put the last full stop on the page and the ink has dried, they have gone from me and they've gone out there to readers. And readers are the ones that know whether someone will stay together more than the writer does because I've got off that train and it's gone on without me. So I know, I don't really ever think I'm like very that. disappointed. I, know, I, know, I thought of what Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in You've Got Mail. I think they'd stay together. Yeah. Why? Uh, Why so? Uh, and I haven't read Sense and Sensibility, but I think Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant in that one, I think they'd stay <laughs> You they'd just stay want Hugh together. Grant to stay married. Yeah. Yeah. Get married and stay married. <laughs> Is there a bit of a conflation of character and actor here <laughs> going on? Know, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. let, me, let, let me make it... All right, go on, Kate. Well, no, I, I mean, although I never write weddings uh, as the end of something, I always start start there rather than finish there. At the same time, I'm horribly, incurably romantic, which is why I love Monsieur's films. And I, I do want to think that Eliza and Darcy will stay together, actually. And I like the idea of the older couples in literature staying together. So I think that, you know, some people are going to make it, some aren't. And you, the ones that fall out before they get married, and they have several full starts, I think, you know, they, they're testing it. Yeah, that is the a, one, yeah, isn't that the thing, that you believe the couples will stay together who are Benedict and Beatrice or yeah. and Mr. Darcy, who spent quite a lot of time... Yeah, yeah, they will, because they spent quite a lot of time disagreeing with each other. My fair lady, bickering. can you imagine that fucking marriage? <laughs> That's... Can you imagine Higgins? He'll be in court in about, yeah. in about six months. That would be my take, anyway. <laughs> Anna and the King of Siam. No, they, yeah, I think you're Actually, right. he dies, doesn't he? Yeah. So that's okay. <laughs> but of course, quite, quite a, in, in, the, in novels and before the 20th century, in a way, the question is academic because they do have to stay together. Yes. That's the thing. I mean, the funny thing is, Richard, in a way, that your films making weddings such a big deal have rediscovered the sort of importance of something that novelists had sort of maybe started thinking is not so important. I mean, when, when a Jane Austen heroine, age sometimes 17, chooses her guy on the basis, in the case of Catherine Morland, of 11 weeks' acquaintance, during which time she's never been alone with him except two occasions very briefly and some dancing, she's making a decision for the whole of her life and yeah. there's no one doing it, absolutely none. And she can't have a... She can't have a bit in the side, and she can't say, oh, actually, try, try another one. That one didn't work out. So I wonder if sort of 
I mean, it's a bit of a miracle you've discovered the importance of weddings again, because I always thought liberal divorce laws were a disaster for novelists. No, I think the stakes are still generally yes. held to be high. Yeah. I think on the whole, people, when they get married, are expecting to stay together. I mean, unless you married Donald Trump or something like that, in which case you have to Collins. be a fool. Yeah, or Joan Collins. I think one of the, I was just thinking about happy marriages and thinking how in non-romantic things, the only happy ones are if, if you start watching something and the couple are happy, one of them's going to get cancer. That's, that's a big thing. So, that, so, so it, you think film like you, films find it very difficult actually to show a happy marriage? Unless one of them's going to get cancer or get kidnapped by Alan Rickman or <laughs> have sex with Glenn Close. Yeah. Or, so on the whole, yes. If you're yeah. happy, I have to warn There's you, something ghastly is about yeah. to happen. Yeah. I was thinking about genres, and, and it's not interesting to be happy, but actually running TV shows, I mean, particularly situation comedy, which I'm very interested in and think is a great form, is very interested in happy marriages. Actually, Modern Family is all about making marriages yeah. work, and, um, you know, The Good Life was about making marriages work, and the... Simpsons is about making marriages work. So it's quite interesting that in that, yes. where it's running, which is like all our lives, much more realistic than the two-hour form of movies or the one-incident form of novels. In fact, people find it quite easy to portray yes. the realities of the ups and downs of... My favourite marriage is Basil Fawlty and Sybil. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, it's very hard to imagine their wedding, isn't it? Yeah. But there is, there is a, if, if you're on that, I mean, isn't one of the brilliant things about that marriage that there are odd episodes? I remember there's one in particular where it's their wedding anniversary, I think I'm right in saying, and rather poignantly, uh, Sybil thinks that he's forgotten again, and we know that he's remembered, isn't this right? Yeah. And he's planning something, and it's tragicomic, because of course he cocks it all up and he blunders, yeah. and he manages to absolutely confirm all her worst fears. But the truth is that out admittedly, partly out of terror, he has remembered yeah. and is trying to do something. And the truth is that even though she is a dragon, you know, she is... She wants to believe in their marriage, doesn't she? So Do you think fear is the central quality of marriage? <laughs> I think it might be. How many people here who are married are afraid of the person they're married to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think fear lives. You notice that was only gentlemen who put their yeah. hands up at that moment. <laughs> That's, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I was thinking one of the great examples of a, of a sort, of, um, sort of mercenary marriage... Um, in, in world literature, which is, uh, I think, lots of people's favourite marriage, in, in a way, in, Char in, uh, in Jane Austen, which is Charlotte Lucas and Mr. Collins. And you're, you find out that after they get married, Elizabeth visits them, doesn't she? And she can't understand how her friend could have got married to this awful person. And then she visits her, and she can't understand why she's chosen the worst room in the house to spend most of her time in. And then she notices that Charlotte's brilliantly arranged everything so that she hardly ever meets her husband. He's at home all day, mm. but she never meets him. He's either doing the gardening or he's in other parts of the house, and she thinks, how ingenious. But 
She has to go to bed with him at the end of the day. That's the sort of gruesome thing. <laughs> <laughs> I went, How many married people here find going to bed at the end of the day gruesome? <laughs> A very Nobody. wise decision, yeah, since this yeah. is... Well, well, you know that. You know, in, of course, in Evelyn War novels, they don't necessarily. They have separate bedrooms, don't they? Yeah. If they're at all yeah. well off. And there's that woman in *The Wife in Brideshead Revisited*. Says one of the great anti-erotic lines in world fiction. She says, "Shall I do my face?" And that's her <laughs> line. That's what she she means. Are we going to have sex? And if he says, "No, don't do your face." It means they're going to go to bed together and have sex or try to. I, I think but she's if she been does misled. Her face, then she's intact. <laughs> if it's her face she's worried about. Um, the, the thing that I would, um, that I think is really interesting about all of this, though, it's that tension that everybody understands that are you marrying for love or are you marrying for position and status or because you're being forced into it, all of those things. And so then you see in some novels, obviously you know that my favourite novel, Wuthering Heights, where you see people marrying the wrong people for the wrong reasons. So Catherine marries Linton, not Heathcliff, because Heathcliff is her and they are meant to be together and it's about passion and it's fundamental and it's violent and she doesn't marry him. She marries Linton because he's a pale reflection, all the things that she hasn't got. And of course we know that won't work because in that novel you can't do it. And when Heathcliff marries, we don't even see it because it's so wrong, he elopes with Isabella. And so that's the thing that I think is really interesting, that the marriages, are they supposed to be for love or are they about circumstance? Which of course is back to your question of how does Richard make it work so well in his films that marriage matters and is, is fun and lovely and we feel happy mainly using Beyonce songs Beyonce <laughs> it went, oddly enough it's strange how convincing love feels with a bit of Barry White or Boyzone I see so yeah. that's the, the trick to modern marriage I was remembering my mum's <laughs> description of her wedding night because she said she spent a huge amount of time deciding which nightgown to buy because um, she was a young Australian virgin. And she said the most frightening moment in her life was she laid out the two nightgowns that she chose and said to my father, which of these do you want me to wear? And he said, you won't be needing either of them. Uh, and, and the harsh reality struck her. <laughs> it is, it's the job, it's often the job of, um, of books and everything to be as dramatic as possible. But one of the things I have been very struck by over the years is how my films, which portray people falling in love and then getting married, which happens, I don't know, a million times a year in the UK and all the way around the world, are always accused of being sentimental and unrealistic. Whereas if you see a film about a soldier who goes AWOL and locks a woman in a flat uh, and slices off the fingers of her children, uh, that's called searingly realistic and reflective of the <laughs> truth of society. Uh, and I do think that we should all be cheered by the fact yeah. that so often, all around the country... I mean, we went, I went to a wedding just last weekend where the groom walked on his hands back down the aisle after it. And it was just so full of happiness and joy and optimism. And I do think that it's part of our job to say, actually, there is a lot of joy and happiness and that it sh we should try and find ways dramatically to reflect that and emotionally to reflect that and I'm very gripped by the fact that the British are not very good at saying I love you 
and particularly not in movies and books, but we're the greatest in the world at saying it in pop songs. And actually, that's one of the things you'll notice, that uh, when you go to, if you listen to everyone from the Beatles to the Arctic Monkeys, so much of it is just people saying, I love you. We seem to find it easier in three-minute bursts. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, true. it's true that in life, even on occasions where one might have been skeptical the day before the ceremony, once you turn up to a wedding, everybody believes it, don't they? Yeah. Whereas in literature, you do get these weddings which are completely blighted. I mean, and everybody, I, and I was thinking when you were saying it wasn't just Victorian, um, another a more recent example popped into my head. I warn you, this is a spoiler, but the book's been out for a long while. In Ian McEwan's brilliant novel, Atonement, um, one of the plot revelations comes where Bryony goes to a wedding and it's the wedding of her cousin and she goes to the wedding and she realizes at the wedding that the man her cousin is marrying is her rapist, you know, and that, and that, that rape made her his in some ghastly sort of way. He took possession of her and far from that being a sort of, you know, that, that a passing thing, that meant he was going to marry her, and we find out near the end of the novel that he's married her for the next 50 years or something, until he gets a knighthood and so on. Yeah, so doomed weddings. I did go to a posh wedding where I heard the bride, who was on drugs, um, <laughs> whisper the words, do you fancy a shag later to somebody as she came back down the aisle, and I felt that wouldn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> you were very, very bohemian life, Richard. No. Uh, he really has, yes. <laughs> no. Very what is, what is he, Richard said Basil and Sybil as a favourite marriage of his, favourite fictional marriage. Do you have a favourite one, Kate? I, su I, I suppose in that sort of old-fashioned, sort of blue-stocking reading way, um, I love it when Dorothea um, gets her man in the end. She gets the right man. She gets Lydgate. She gets the, the thoughtful, teachery person rather than the old stick of Casubon that she yeah, married. The old the academic, oh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah, the old academic. Oh, the old academic. I mean, you can't trust them. What a crusher. Um, yes. What a crusher. Um, you know, cataloguing the library. And I, but, I mean, the, the, the thing about this is that I completely agree with you about joy and weddings. And the, in real life and in your films particularly and in other films, I think that's fantastic. The reason I don't write weddings isn't because I don't feel that completely, because I'm hideously sentimental and chirpy, annoyingly chirpy, um, indeed. It's more that, for me, I'm more interested in everything else about a woman's life, not who her husband is. And there's so many great novels that are about getting married and who your husband's going to be. So I've left that to the, the people who can write those better. So I think the, the thing about happy marriages, why we don't read so much about them, is that books aren't about the marriage, because that's sort of given as read. So it's all the other stuff that happens in men's and women's lives that are not about that, not about that single storyline, as if everything stops then. I do know a girl who cancelled her wedding on the first day, I mean, on the day, and didn't turn up. But weirdly, she said she went to the church and sat in a car to see what everyone was wearing. <laughs> your, your life seems to outdo oh. anything that the great novelists of the 19th yeah, yeah, century exactly. can throw at us. That's You've been to a lot of weddings, <laughs> yes. haven't you? That's why I wrote the film. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I had no other experience. <laughs> Apart from going to weddings. But, Kate, your, your examples, your examples from Middlemarch, say, mm. um, 
Don't they show what difficulties kind of writers can have with doing marriage? Because actually, Jane, um, um, Georgia, it's a bit of a cheat, isn't she? Because she makes Dorothea marry the dry old stick whom she shouldn't marry, and we're shouting, no, 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 and she marries him. And then there's some brilliant stuff about how she discovers, but, you know, you have to infer this, that he's not going to consummate the marriage. And... This sounds like a great book, it, well, by the it way. Is, it is quite a good one, Richard, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are other things that go on in the book as well, but this okay. is one, one plot line. And then she discovers, and then you, you think, brilliant, a demonstration of a terrible mistake to make. And then George Eliot makes him die. He dies of a weak yeah. heart. And she does it again in Daniel Deronda. The woman, Gwendolyn, marries this awful man this time, who's actually nasty, sadistic, and he's got a mistress with three children down the road. And she makes him fall out of a boat in the Mediterranean and drowned. Mm. So Gwendolyn will be able to have another chance. So Happened to Robert Maxwell? Yeah, well, yeah. but they're cheating all the time, yeah. these 19th century novels. Well, no, I mean, people did die in the 19th century, John. But this, One or this two of them. Poor old Casorban, he was my age. <laughs> and all he does is read Your books. age then is not... Your age he doesn't now. have That's any sex. There's no strain on his heart of any kind. <laughs> I think the gentleman doth protest too much, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, I mean, no, of course, there are cheats, but that's, that's why we make stuff up. And I'm sure lots of people in the audience who are writers make stuff up because you can do that stuff. You can decide that you're going to, for once, the baddie's going to get it. You know, it's not going to be real. How is Mugabe not dead? Well, that's terrible, isn't it? That is exactly right. Now, if you'd been making the film, or I'd been making it up, he would be, wouldn't he? He's 93. Well, he obviously has too much sex, I suspect. No, it's true. Longevity, writers can use longevity as a reward, can't they? In a way that sort of God doesn't seem to. Yeah. Can we we think... You you thought of the example, Richard, of um, Brief Encounter, which I think is a fantastic one, where just got one of my... One of my favourite quotes in, while she's sort of thinking about the other man whom, of course, she doesn't. She doesn't have it off with, but she's sort of fallen for. And her husband says to her, she's distracted, and her husband says to her, happy, darling. She says, no, not very. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's like the cameo of their marriage. Do you know, it just occurred to me, is Brief Encounter a gay film? Do you mean in, you know... Cheerful? No, I'm just saying, is it it really a film about a gay affair? That's all that suddenly occurred to me since it was written by Noel Coward. I was just, it just occurred to me. How many people think Brief Encounter is a film about a gay affair? That's just the power of suggestion. You haven't argued for it. They've never thought of it. Why is it about, why why is it? Because... Well, no, just because that was what, you know, Noel Coward was gay and he wasn't able to write about it. He wasn't able to write about it. And I'm thinking about that moment where... They go back to the room and the friend yes, comes yes, in yes. and says, this is so sordid yes. and I'm worried about that. And I'm suddenly wondering whether or not that was um, what he was really writing. There's so certainly a lot of that in Rattigan, one would yeah. say. So yeah. it's all about a rela- yeah, so it's about a relationship she can't ever have. She has to yeah. stick with the respectable... Yeah. So, but do you think there's any... I mean, in film, are there any representations of actually a believably happy marriage? Okay, the couple in Mary Poppins. They're happy. They are. I think they're happy, actually. Are they? Can I... I'm not sure they're a very inspiring example. Tarzan and Jane? Oh, dear me. I don't think they're they're married. Aren't they married? I think we've got a terrible 
terrible realization <laughs> dawning on all of us that the great celebrant of marriage in, in sort of recent cinematic history can't really believe that any marriages are happy ever at all. Terrible. What about... Okay, I'll, I'll, offer you, I'll offer you one, Kate. Yes. What about Admiral and Mrs. Croft in Persuasion? Do you remember them? No. No, they're very, very happy. Are they? But, I mean, the Sound of Music, you're right. He's happy at the end. At the end, no. Yeah. But that, I was thinking of people you actually Captain. see being There is a being cloud married. on the horizon there, though. You are. That's to Captain say. Von Trapp. Um, yes. He's happy. Yes. We could do that. We could just yeah. go up and down the steps. Um, no, no, but, but the thing is, because films aren't about a happy marriage, because they're just too long. So that's the point, that all the happy marriages exist in a story about something else. So things that are about marriages, Richard's films that make everybody joyous, that's about the wedding. And the happy marriage just then happens, and it's about something else. It's about taking over the world or being a scientist and discovering the cure for cancer so that you can't be kidnapped or die in your happy marriage. And what about that? Is it Shadowlands? What about that? That's well, that's it. the cancer but one. That's, that's the cancer, cancer one. You're right, that yeah. You don't want to prove his point. No, 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 no. I That's do, I do want one. to prove that his point. That is definitely the cancer one. Yeah, well, you know, love yeah. story. Yeah, poor old love story. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. So, so, and also, we're fascinated, aren't we, in, in, in films and in novels, we're fascinated with adultery, aren't we? So you see, uh, you see a marriage at the, in a story near the beginning, and you have to feel that whether temptation will come along and be rejected or temptation come along and be rejected, that be accepted. That's what's going to happen. That's why you're being shown married people. Isn't that right? Yeah, either that or yeah, or they're going to get murdered or, yeah, or something. That's another one. Something horrid happens to your kids. That's yeah. another one which proves you're happy. Because that's, isn't that... If a, you want to be happy, get someone to kidnap or murder your child. The Weasleys. The Weasleys, yeah. that's true. Oh. No, and there are, and that we were thinking Mr. and Mrs. Micawber. There are sort of low level, happy, stupid people who are happy. No, and the Cratchits Pegatine. in Christmas Isn't she happy? Carol. The Cratchits They're in happy. Christmas Carol, yeah. They're, in fact, the happiest married couple and family probably in literature. That's aren't they? true. The Cratchits? Yeah. That's true, yes. yes. But that's because their son's sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're happy. Yeah. <laughs> there was a girl there. Yeah, shout it again. Mike Lee. Do you know I thought of that one too? Jim Broadbent is very Mike happy in another happy. year. That's absolutely oh, right. That. that is a gorgeous no. version of happy. Of well, tell, tell me about that one, Richard. So well, that? they've got an unhappy friend. Um, and that's why they're happy. I think you're shoe because horning your theory. Because the friend keeps coming to visit, here. and they say, "Oh God, we're happy in comparison to that poor wretch." Uh, uh. It's becoming very clear that in order to be happy, you have to be poor. Yeah. Um, that's another thing, Could, which I do think is true, yeah. by the way. I, I wonder if anybody here can think of some, not necessarily entirely happy, but just simply believable. Gone girl. There's a re there's a uh. realistic. There's a... <laughs> How many people here are staying with the person they're married to because they know that if they won't, they will kill them? <laughs> How many people here were going to get married but now have changed their mind of the young folk? <laughs> <laughs> there's, a gentleman, there's a gentleman here who talked about... who said David Archer. Yeah. That, that to you is a chronicle of a believable marriage. Why, why so, sir? 
Yes, but then they, they, they can do something different there. It's rather like you were saying in, uh, in, in sitcoms, Richard. When you've got a story which can go on and on and on and on, you can actually do things which, if you make a film or write a novel, you can't really do, which is to show it going on and on and on. Yeah. Well, you get, lots of crime novelists do that. So if you read Ruth Rendell's Wexford novels, that is a portrait of a happy marriage over 40 years' yeah. worth. Um, so it's, it's, you can do it then if you have sort of people going on all the time. But mostly, obviously, detectives are drunken and that, mad and yes. on their own. But Wexford, you know, Wexford stands out. Ah, yes. Couples who don't say anything to each other, but in a good way. <laughs> Actually, that would be my main piece of advice to people, because I've been with the same person for 25 years. And I think try and marry someone talkative would be my main advice, rather than someone quiet. Because I remember having a girlfriend and starting a very long journey and saying, I hadn't seen her for a while, and I said, how was your week? And she said, fine. <laughs> and I thought, we've got four hours now to go when I've got to describe my week. So that would be my advice to the young. Yeah. Marry someone talkative. What do you think? Silence between people as a sign of contentment. <laughs> Well, that, but that is exactly the problem, isn't it, about happy marriage. If people know each other, they've been together for ages, you don't need, there's no reason to illustrate anything outside of it. And, of course, the talkative thing doesn't work in Pride and Prejudice because that's one of the beefs about Mrs. Bennet, that she prattles on yes, yes. the whole time. And, and he doesn't like that at all. Although there's a great, the great, the most charged scene in Pride and Prejudice is uh, when Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, having done quite a lot of chat-chat-chat, find themselves for the first time ever on their own together in a room. And they're on their own together for half an hour, and guess what they do? Do you remember what they do? Mr. Darcy reads a newspaper, and Elizabeth says, not a thing. They remain in complete silence, and you absolutely know that means that this is the highest voltage attraction that you've ever read. Yeah. Not a word. Yeah. Right, I think we're, we're, gonna we're, gonna have, we're gonna have to stop, I think. I've been given the signal. So we perhaps have time for one more, one more contribution from the audience, sir. Terry, Terry and you. Do you know, and the good That's life. Right. And what an apotheosis of the afternoon's discussion yeah. that is. Yeah. yeah. What a climax, what a catastrophe. Terry and, and June. June is I'm where afraid, we end sir, up. There are some blank faces in this tent. But not but on the know, stage. Not on this stage. And we know, sir, the loss is theirs, do we not? Terry and June. Terry and June. And isn't that a brilliant example also of what you were doing, Richard, which is, I believe that's one of those examples where the, the fictional characters have the same names as the actors yes. who are playing them. So after a while, one of the successes was you started thinking these people were really married, yeah. which I don't think they were, actually, were they, in real life? <clears throat> Do you know, my favourite romantic film is Spinal Tap, um, and I think they would they were gonna stay together forever. I don't even remember that couple. Well no 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 they were the couple oh, in the band. Oh the band. Yeah. So can I recommend to you the Boomtown Rats who are gonna be on later? They've stayed together. And Bob says, prepare for some ratitude. Okay. So that's a kind of marriage too. Yeah. Well, we'll end with the universality of that metaphor. Thank you very much for your suggestions and questions. And thank, thank you, so you much. to Richard and Kate.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.